You're listening to the Boots About Business podcast. We share stories from military veterans that have transitioned to the world of business. On the show, you'll hear conversations with business leaders, executives, and entrepreneurs that all started their careers wearing boots in the service of the U.S. Armed Forces. This podcast is equal parts about sharing great stories, helping veterans, helping businesses, and fostering a greater understanding of the value veterans can bring to business. Welcome, everybody, to episode number 18 of the Boots About Business podcast. I am your host, Frank Strong, and here with us today is Craig Hatcher. Craig is a veteran of the Navy, and today he's a real estate agent. We're going to talk to him a little bit about a career in real estate for veterans thinking about that as an option. And while we'll have him here, we're also going to ask him a little bit for his take on the housing market and some of the associated benefits many veterans have earned, like VA loans and interest rate reductions. Mr. Craig Hatcher, welcome to the show, sir. Thank you, Frank. It's good to be here. Thank you. Thank you for coming. And one of the first questions we always ask, the common denominator that we all have is, why did you join the service? For me, why I joined the service was I always wanted to serve my country. I was in high school ROTC. I knew I was going to go into some branch of service. Most likely Army was what I was thinking at the time. I have a family history of service. I have uncles, brothers, that's all that was in the service. And um, I had some guys show up at my high school one day in our chemistry class. They talked to us about nuclear power. It fascinated me more than anything else had ever done so. I was like, ooh, I get to be on the Starship Enterprise. You know, I'm kind of a geek at heart. And so next thing I know, I found myself taking a nuclear field test, passing it, and signing up to go into the Navy to be a nuclear field operator. Okay. And that's what you did? You were Yeah, I was a nuclear machinist mate. Um, So I helped the day-to-day operation of the power plant. My actual job was to play with steam turbines. Steam generators, valves, pumps, all that kind of good jazz. You know, think of an old steamship. I joke with people, nuclear power sounds really glamorous, but basically the power plant's just a giant boiler. It makes the water really hot. And then we use steam the same way we've used for hundreds of years. And, you know, you don't look green to me today, so it sounds like you No, survived. we used to joke that we played with radiation and glowed in the dark, but I never really glowed in the dark. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Did you go anywhere special while you uh, were in the Navy? One of, It's kind of funny because one of the reasons I joined the Navy besides the nuclear power was I did want to see the world. And, you know, at that time that I joined, that was kind of their uh, slogan. I think it was, it's not just a job, it's an adventure. So I thought I would get to see the world. I grew up in Georgia. I went to Florida. South Carolina, Virginia, and up and down the Atlantic. And that's all I ever went to. I went to the U.S. Virgin Islands. So I got to go to one island. (laughs) I ask everybody this question because the service is such a unique job. I think somebody I had on said, you know, you live the military. It's not a job. Like in the civilian world, you go to a job, you come home. But the military, it's a way of life. And so I ask everybody this question, but what was your, your worst day in uniform? So my worst day in uniform actually wasn't a single day. It was a double day. We were out at sea. We were doing a bunch of drills to get some certifications for our ship. And one of the ones that required us to be at extended general quarters or combat stations. Think of the movies where you hear the wah, 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 you know, red alert, red alert type thing. And normally we would do those and they would last maybe 30 minutes to two hours. This one was an extended general quarters. We stayed at it for 48 hours. And so for two days, you were on battle station, you had to eat there, you had to sleep there, you had to go to the bathroom there. It was just brutal taxing to your body because you can't leave, you know, the size of a dining room, basically. So you say battle stations, and you mentioned Star Trek earlier. I'm just envisioning Captain Picard saying everyone to their battle station. Is that the way? It- yeah, we had this system on the ship. It's called the 1MC. It's like the intercom system for the whole ship. Yeah. And when they would sound battle stations, you'd hear the Navy's went away from really loud. They called klaxons. 
they don't use the really loud ones now. It's it's more of a subtle one. It's like bong, bong, bong type thing. I'm probably ruining that noise. And then you literally hear, you know, all hands, man your battle stations, red alert, you know, and you have to leave what you're doing. You just stop whatever you're doing and you go to your battle station. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. So conversely, ask what was your worst day in uniform? I always ask people because there's a lot of good days. What was your best day? Sure. My best day was probably when I was training to be on the reactor. We had what's called a prototype or a hands-on training. And part of our job there was uh, one of the things you had to do was you knew you were going to have a casualty. You knew you were going to have something go wrong on your watch. And you were going to be graded on how well you performed that. You didn't know what it was. You knew about a dozen or so that it might be, but you didn't know which one. And so I'm on watch one night. It's my casualty watch. I know it's coming. I know in the next eight hours, at some point, something's going to break. And I hear a strange noise coming from one of the steam generators. So I do my job. I call it away. I call it to maneuvering. I tell them to stop the steam generator, go through all the checklists, do everything right. And the whole time, I notice a lot of chiefs, you know, in the Navy, the chiefs are like kind of our NCOs. I notice a lot of chiefs are showing up more than normal. I don't know if maybe like they're, you know, grading me better or something. I have no idea what's going on. When it's all said and done, I find out that they didn't actually cause that. It was an actual real casualty. But because I was doing it right, they actually just let me go ahead and do it. They didn't take over like they would normally do. And uh, that was really cool. Proud moment because it's like, wow, I did it well enough that, you know, they felt I could handle it. That was one of the reasons I was awarded a commanding officer's personal excellence award at the end of that training. So that was really cool that, you know, to actually get to go through a real casualty and feel that you were able to handle it. Just goes to show you train like you fight. and it, Exactly. I mean, I, at no point did I think it was anything other than a drill. And that's the best way to handle it because you don't get panicky. You don't get crazy. You just, you know, and I still use that today, that ability to not get freaked out by something. You know, in real estate, a lot of times in a deal, something will happen where, I don't know, a seller will get upset or a buyer will get upset or an inspection will come back poorly. And I've had clients for go, wow, you know, you stay cool as a cucumber when all this stuff's falling apart. And it's like, well, I worried about a reactor that could melt down and, and destroy the ship. So your house just doesn't phase me. You right. know, it, it, there's no reason to get excited about it. Yeah. You know, and I think that's definitely a skill that people pick up in the military that can serve them well in the civilian world that, you know, if you I mean, I know you were in combat. I mean, there's nothing the civilian world's going to throw at you that's going to phase you like combat's going to. So I think that's a good skill set that we in the military pick up that we can translate into the business world, not getting freaked out when things do go wrong. And they always do. What, um, so nuclear power is a, I mean, so that's a great point. It's a good segue to this question. Nuclear power is a long way from real estate. What else do you think the service taught you that is applicable in your work today? I mean, I learned so much in the service. It's hard to single out a couple of things, you know, one or two things. I mean, for me, I knew in high school that I could do more. I knew that I was selling myself short. I knew that I needed someone to step in and kind of be that discipline instiller, if you will. I was never really into sports or anything, so I didn't get it from that, but I knew I was missing it. So when I joined the Navy, part of it was I wanted to find something that I could find a greater purpose in and that I could you know, aspire to be more. And it definitely did that. But what it also did was it taught me that you have to look at a task and make it into small chunks and then just do what you've got to do until you get to the end of the task. And it will always be over. You know, there's sometimes that you feel like the task is never going to end, but it always does. It also taught me, you know, personal management, management of others. Several times I was put in charge of, you know, either fellow recruits or fellow team members. And when you have to get a job done 
and you know people are relying on you, you don't really get to sit around and, and not worry about it, not do it. You have to do the job. When I got out, before I got in real estate, I was in a managerial position with a large Fortune 500 company. And one of the reasons I was in that position, I was told later, was because I was a veteran. And they had found that veterans tended to not really need a lot of handholding. You know, you tell a veteran, go do this job, and they go do it. Yeah. And it's just something that veterans, you know, people sometimes say we get bonus points, you know, if you try for a government job or different things, you know, and they're like, that's not fair. Well, I think what people have to realize is it's a skill set that you can't really quantify very easily. Like you can't really put it on a resume, you know, all the different things you learn, but there's so much there that you do learn that just kind of becomes, like you were saying, it's, it's not a, it's not a job, it's a lifestyle. That stuff gets ingrained in your head. Yeah. You know, to this day, if I hear Reveille, I'll probably jump to attention. You know, and, and I've been out for a long time. Problem solving, finding finding a way yeah. to get things done. Yeah, we, you get thrown into so many situations where you weren't prepared for it or it was uncertain, and yet you still find a way to find success. Absolutely. Let's get into the transition a little bit. How, you know, how and why did you leave the service and kind of what was your plan? So my wife always jokes that if she had known me then and we'd been married, I wouldn't have left when I did. She would have had me stay until I retired. But basically, you know, my time was up. I was ready to do something else. I didn't want to stay in anymore. Nuclear power is very interesting. It was also very boring. Most of the job is spent watching machinery that doesn't go wrong. If it goes wrong, that's a problem. So it's just a, it's just kind of a boring job. Yeah. You know, you look at gauges all day, go, okay, pressure's where it's supposed to be. So when I first got out, I was ready to go to college. You know, I, I had my, uh, you know, my funding and everything all set up. And so I came back to Georgia. I still had my family was here and everything. And I tooled around, did a little bit, met my wife. We got married. She moved down from Michigan and she didn't know the area at all. So she kind of got to know the area by going to like home communities, open houses, new home communities. And I told her one day we were out and um, we were at a new home community and the sales agent didn't know as much as my wife did. There, there was a, another person there asking questions and my wife knew like all the answers about the house and the community and everything. And when we left, I told my wife, I was in a sales job at the time. I told her, I said, you're really good at that. You should like, you know, go be an agent yourself, you know, like find out how to become a real estate agent. Neither one of us had a clue. And so she did. And about a year later, I decided to transition over with her and we've been doing it together ever since. Uh -huh. And so you, you had today, you have your own business and th that involves like a, I guess, an, another level of certification, if you will, in the real estate business. And I'm getting after is the difference between an agent and a broker. Sure. And so your brokers, I wonder if you could tell us just so that people can understand as a level set what those are and what the differences are. Sure. So when you meet most real estate agents that you meet, they're an agent. They may be what's called an associate broker, um, but they're not the broker of their company. So basically what it is, is when you first get in, you're an agent. You have to be in a certain number of years and you have to take more training and more state schools and then you can become a broker. A broker, you have to have a broker to operate a real estate firm. They're the person that's responsible for everything. Technically, when you sign a, like when I was hoping you buy your house, the contracts weren't between you and me as an agent. They were between me and as the broker and you as the client. If another agent had been involved under me, they still would have been between me as the broker and you as the client. So the agent's affiliated with the broker and that's just kind of like the first step. Now, some agents are what's called an associate broker. That means they took the training, but they haven't actually opened their own firm. They're still working under another broker. You can only have one true broker per firm. So that's kind <laughs> what of- What is the purpose of that? Why do we need a broker? The broker is the one that's actually responsible. So if the agent screws up, if the agent does something wrong, violates fair housing, doesn't follow proper procedures, the broker is the one that's actually ultimately responsible. From like a Navy standpoint, the, the broker is kind of like the CO. 
you know, whatever happens on the ship is the CEO's responsibility, even if he's not on the ship. So you have to write a level idea. of training and education. Level experience. of training and education. You have to make sure all the policies and procedures are followed. You have to make sure anytime new laws come out that your agents are following those. You have to make sure that your agents aren't doing something they're not supposed to do. And that's why, at least in the state of Georgia, there's actually a law, an advertising law, that says the brokerage firm's name and phone number must be on all advertising, and it has to be at least as big or bigger than the agent's name and number. Now, not everyone follows that, but for the most part, it gets followed. Mm -hmm. That way, if the client, if the consumer has a problem, they're not calling an agent saying, hey, you didn't do your job right. They can actually reach the broker because that's the one that the state ultimately says is responsible. Yeah, got it. So for somebody that's listening or maybe considering transitioning from the military or even, I mean, I know people that have done careers and picked up, you know, civilian careers and picked up being a real estate agent on the side and then eventually go in full time. Yep. So you don't necessarily have to be a transitioning veteran to think about as a career, but what are some of the advantages and disadvantages of being an agent? Well, the advantage is you basically, while you are at least in the beginning under a broker and most people stay under brokers, most people don't open their own firms. One of the biggest advantages is you do somewhat have unlimited income potential. You know, it's what you make of it. If you want to go out and hustle and get lots of clients and help them buy houses and sell houses, you can make a lot of money. You know, you can be very successful financially. One of the biggest disadvantages that goes with that, the harder you work, the more, you know, you're going to be working. You know, it's not a nine to five job at all. I talk to people all the time and go, oh, well, I heard you can be at part-time. You can if you're maybe with some other folks and you're like in a team, but you can't do it part-time by yourself, especially in our competitive market right now. Homes come on the market and they're literally gone in a day or two if yeah. they're a decent house. So you have to be available for your clients. I've got a new client right now. And one of the things they asked me was, well, if I see a house, can I go out today and see it? And I was like, yeah, that, that's what I do. I haven't taken a true you know, extended vacation in years because... If I go on vacation, one of my clients needs to see a house. What are they yeah. going to do? I don't want them to lose a house because I'm down in Florida, you know, for a week, you know. So that is one of the biggest things that I think if I could ever even look back, my wife and I have talked about this. One of the problems with owning your own firm is you are the one that's responsible for everything. You know, you got to balance that. So if someone's thinking about coming into real estate, they need to realize there is a lot of flexibility. There is a lot of income potential. But like anything in, in life, when there's a lot of reward, there's a lot of risk and you've got to be willing to dedicate to it. Yeah. Yeah. Anybody that owns their own business, you're uh, you're on the hook 24-7. Exactly. And it's no different. The, the biggest difference is you're you're completely at the behest of other people's schedules and, and you don't know what their schedule is going to be. And you're at the at the call of when hosses come on the market. Yeah. So that is something that a lot of people don't really think about until they get in. And then they realize that could be you know, a problem for them. Do the hours tend to be, you know, you're talking about the schedule, but people work, they have jobs. So when they want to see a house, it's going to be after work. Or yeah, it, it tends to be in the evenings and on the weekends. And so if you're the kind of person that you like your weekends free, I don't recommend real estate for you. If you're the kind of person that, you know, you can take time during the week, during the day and feel like that's a day off, then it might be a good fit. Yeah, makes a lot of and sense. And I think that's a good thing I got from the military, too, because, like, I mean, we had such weird schedules. Like, you know, half the time you didn't even know what day of the week it was. Yeah. It was like, was I, am I on watch or am I on sleep? You know, yeah. so. Water, water well. everywhere. Yeah, exactly. What are the skills that you need to be a good real estate agent? I mean, I think first and foremost, you have to be willing to serve people, which, again, is where, you know, being a vet comes in handy. Because let's be honest, anyone that joins the military wanted to be, wanted to in some way serve people. And you have to be willing to serve people in real estate. You have to be willing to listen to your clients, learn what they want, sometimes explain to them what they want is not really what they need. You know, that can be a tough situation, but it's something you definitely have to do. 
And you have to be willing to be patient with them and help them to find what it is that they really need and what they really want and, you know, get them to the goal, get them to the goal of owning their own home, which is what, you know, the goal is for everybody that we help, you know? Yeah. But yeah, you, you have to be willing to serve them and you have to be willing to to be that kind of confidant for them, if you will. We wear a lot of hats, you know, sometimes I have to almost act like a financial planner. Other times I have to be a, you know, a, a, a domestic counselor because you'll get a husband and wife or two partners that don't know what they want or want radically different things. Sometimes you have to explain to people what they want can't happen. You know, I'll have people say, well, I want a really flat yard, but I want a basement. Well, you can't get both. You got to have a hill to have a basement. It's just physics. Yeah. What advice would you have for someone listening that, that wants to get in? What do they have to do? Where do they get started? So in Georgia, it's pretty simple. You have to go take a class that's about, I think it's 75 course hours. And once you get done with that class, you have to take a, an exam from the school. And once you take the exam from the school, you take an exam from the state. And now you're licensed. But to practice real estate, you have to find a broker to be under. You can't practice real estate as just a real estate salesperson. Mm -hmm. So you find a brokerage. You should interview with several. You shouldn't just, you know, go interview with one. And what you need to make sure of, what I tell people that are thinking about it, whether they're a veteran or not, is it's all about that initial training. Because the state is going to make sure that you stay legal. They're going to make sure you don't violate fair housing. They're going to make sure that you learn how contracts work on the ins and outs. But they're not going to tell you how to get clients. They're not going to tell you how to follow up. They're not going to tell you how to fill out the contracts that we use every day. That's going to come from your brokerage training. And there's a lot of brokerages that will offer the world to you financially, but they don't really offer a lot of training. The ones, as you can expect, the ones that offer decent training, they are not going to give you the most money because they've got to pay someone to train you. And right. that's just part of it. And you need to accept that at least for the first probably year or two. If you go in thinking, oh, I saw this you know, flyer that says I can get 100% commissions the first day I'm out of office. Well, you can, but you're not going to know anything. So you're not going to have any deals. So you get 100% of zero. Yeah. It's funny. It's like that in other industries, too. I'm thinking about legal. If you go to law school and you practice law and you, you get the bar exam, you get your license, and you go to work for a firm, chances are you're going to start off as an associate. Exactly. Right? You're a qualified lawyer, but you don't really have the experience to handle some of the, the circumstances. You've got to work for them for a few years. To Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know of any field where you can like go get training and immediately come in and, and, and be at the top of the totem pole. So yeah. Like, you know, uh, unfortunately, a lot of times with people that have that entrepreneur mindset, because we're impatient, right? Like we want to do more. We want to achieve more. We feel like we should be able to just jump in and be at the top. But it doesn't work that way. That's something I think the military does teach you. You you can get there, but you've got to take the steps. You can't just expect, oh, I got through boot camp. Now I know how to operate a power plant. Like, yeah. Yeah. For me, I think I spent more time training than I spent operating the things. Sure. It's like that in anything you do. If you're in medicine, yeah. all kinds of careers. Absolutely. Should someone try to go, you know, what's your take on agencies? You know, if you've got to get some experience, you get your, mm -hmm. uh, you get your real estate license. They go to work for an agency that's big or small or like, what are some things to think about there? So I don't really think it's so much a matter of big or small. I think it's really a matter of what you want to get out of it and what that brokerage is going to do for you. Like for me, my first brokerage, uh, he's retired now, the broker, but he offered, he really didn't accept new agents. My wife was already an experienced agent. So that's why he was willing to take me on because she knew what she was doing. So she could kind of teach me. But he was more for like an experienced agent. There's other firms that really specialize in new agents. I think if you're a new agent, you need to find a firm like that. You need to sit down with them and say, hey, can you show me maybe a sample of what your training looks like? Or, you know, is someone going to be kind of like a, an unofficial mentor to, to you? You know, are they going to be there to help you through the deals? Because 
here's the other side. Not only do you not know anything, clients are going to ask you questions. And, you know, this goes in any kind of sales thing. No matter what you're selling, the first thing people you always ask you is, well, how much have you done this? How much have you sold of this? You know, when I was helping you buy a home, for instance, you had no doubt that I knew what I was doing. Well, when you're a green behind the ears agent and someone says, well, what do you know about that house? And you really don't know anything about any houses. You better have someone you can fall back on to say, well, I don't personally know, but I have this mentor and they're going to help me and they're going to be there for me. Like right now I have three children, two of them are adults. And um, my son, my oldest is working in our office, learning all the ins and outs of the back end. But my daughter wants to be more what you call a field agent or an out agent. So she's been shadowing me lately. Well, we've been out with buyers and she does, you know, she knows a lot more now than she when she started a few weeks ago. But when she first started, she didn't know anything. Now, the last time we were out with buyers, she was answering their questions. Now, I was there in case she said something wrong. But, you know, that's the only way you learn. You got to do, right? Well, you got to find someone that will help you, but will also make sure you're learning what you need to learn to move forward. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. This is something you learn in the military, too. You you may not have the answer, but uh, you got to know where to find it. Yeah, you got to know where to find the answer. Absolutely. So we're recording this early December. This will probably run in late December 2020. You know, what's your take on the on the real estate market now? Is it a good time to buy a home? So I think it is a good time to buy a home. Of course, I'm in sales, so I'm always going to tell you it's a good time to buy a home. But I do think it actually is a good time. Rates are still at historic lows. The biggest problem we're having right now in the real estate market is we don't have any inventory. Our inventory levels in the Atlanta metro area, like the rest of the country, have been low for the last several years. We've never fully recovered from the recession not building so for basically, you know, 07, 08, 09, 2010, even in the 2011, we weren't really building new housing very much. Right. And that that lack of inventory has caused more issues. Georgia is still a very uh, high, highly rated state for people to move to, to do business in and to have businesses. So that has a huge influx of people. So all those factors together mean we just don't have enough houses. So if you're being, if you're willing to be a little bit flexible in what you want, you can still get a, a decent price. We also, when you compare us to other markets around the country, our prices are still relatively low. Like if you look at similar size cities, Dallas, Fort Worth, Asheville, Charlotte, you know, some of the cities in the Midwest, Cincinnati. Oh, not San Francisco. No, we're way cheaper than that. But but if you look at similar size cities, our prices are historically much lower and you get much more home here. So it's still a good time to buy because we, we haven't seen the price increase that some of those cities have seen because we're so big as a metro area. They're like 14 or 15 counties. Yeah. So it is a big region. I, I bring up San Francisco. We all know like that place in New York, that real estate is. Oh yeah. Their prices are sky high. They're like, just, just insane. They're but insane. this pandemic has, I guess, accelerated a remote work trend, right? They say, you know, recessions, tragedy, calamity doesn't start trends. It just accelerates those emotions. So remote work has already happened. And out west, a lot of the tech workers are like, well, maybe if I can work from home, sure, maybe I don't need to live in San Francisco. No, and, and, and yeah, and I think we're seeing a fundamental shift in where people want to live. Suburban sales are way up. I have lots of you know colleagues that have listings in the city. I don't personally have any listings in town right now. I definitely have in the past. I just don't have any right now. And um, I've talked to several of them, and they've said that you know the, the market for in-town properties right now is a little soft. You know, you see a lot of price adjustments in condos and, and small townhomes, whereas in the suburbs, things are going basically the day they go on the market. Yeah. So it, there definitely is a, a transition from the dense urban centers more to the outskirts, if you will. And we have seen a lot of people. I've got some clients right now that work for companies that have decided they can work from home forever. And several of their colleagues have decided 
to move from California somewhere else. They decided to move from Georgia somewhere else. These two gentlemen both decided to move not out of Georgia because they have family here, but they moved further away from where they were. Yeah. So it's, yeah, we are seeing some weird shifts. And I think it'll take us probably two or three years before those can all settle out and we kind of get some sort of, you know, balance again. Yeah. All right. So I want to bring this to the close, but I do want to talk just briefly about some of the benefits that veterans have, like a VA loan. I remember, I mean, years ago, I guess I, I can't remember when I bought my first home, but it was a long time ago. And mm-hmm. I looked at doing a VA loan and I just remember the costs were higher than a conventional loan at the time. And I kind of threw it out the window and never considered it. And then I met you and you're like, this VA thing is a good deal. What, oh, absolutely. What has changed? What's so, different now? I don't really know exactly what you went through because when when you told me your story, you know, it, it sounded like you definitely had some strange stuff going on with your loans and whatnot. And I know the VA has definitely streamlined the process. It was just more expensive. Yeah, it just was more expensive. So what the VA has done now is they've basically said, one thing is almost any bank can do a VA loan. So, you know, you see you had to go to like kind of specialized institutions. Now you can go to, you know, if you bank at Wells Fargo or if you bank at Chase, they can handle a VA loan with no problem. There's also Navy Federal, there's USAA, there's Veterans United, there's all these companies that specialize in VA loans. So it doesn't really matter. You can go to an independent broker and get a VA loan. It doesn't really matter where you get the loan from. There's certain things that they all have to do. The funding fees have been, you know, streamlined. So if you're a first-time home buyer, the funding fee was 1.75. I think now it's two and a quarter. Check that with a lender because those do vary sometimes and they move around. But that's what you pay as like the funding fee for the loan. You don't pay any down payment. You get 0%. That is huge because there's no other product like that right now other than maybe certain USDA loans and things if you're way out in the middle of the country. But you don't have to pay a down payment. But another big, huge factor is all loans right now, unless you put 20% down, you have to pay what's called private mortgage insurance and or PMI. And that is insurance that you pay the bank so that if you were to foreclose, the bank is made whole because you didn't put 20% down. And once you reach 20%, most loans let you drop that off. Well, the VA doesn't charge that because they're guaranteeing your loan. There's no risk of the bank going belly up if you go belly up, right? right? So between not having to pay the MIP or the PMI, not having to pay a down payment, already you're just so much better off than everyone else. Then there's things like if banks start charging too high of interest rates, compared to the other products, they can get in trouble with the VA. So because of that, the VA's loan rates are really low. I've got someone right now buying a house. They got quoted a VA rate of two and a quarter, you know, 2.25%. That's phenomenally yeah. cheap. I mean, that's like free money, right? So all those things together make it just a wonderful program. And if you do have any kind of service-connected disability, you can usually get the funding fee way. So you still, have, you know, you don't even have to pay the, the, uh, the 2.25% funding fee. Now, you mentioned the IRRLs or IRRLs. That's one the of those. Interest rate reduction. Interest rate reduction. Diet. Yeah. At first, so those are for what kind of person? So the IRRL is basically the, the VA said, hey, you know what? Interest rates change. And when interest rates change, veterans should get the benefit from that lower reduction of rate without having to go through a lot of hoops. We already approved them for their loan. We already know they got good job or whatever. The house is good value because we did all that when we approved the loan. We just want to lower the interest rate. So they came up with a program, the IRRL, or Interest Rate Reduction Loan. And it's a streamlined process where you go to a bank that offers it, and they basically reduce the loan, you know, reduce your interest rate. Now, you do start over, so it's like any other kind of refinance. you got to look at all the numbers. But the fee to the VA is only half a point of the loan. So if you have a $200,000 loan balance, you're going to pay half a point of that. 
you know, whatever your loan balance is, that's what it is. You can also do a cash out refinance under that program. That's where you get some cash back from the equity of your home. Maybe you want to improve your house. Maybe you want to do whatever. This has nothing to do with our podcast. It's just something, a personal thing because I've seen it so much. If you ever take cash out on your house, don't use it anywhere other than your house. That's what got us in trouble for the recession. People took cash out and went on vacation or bought a new car. The problem with that is you're taking the equity from your home. And when you get ready to sell it, you're going to expect that equity to be there twice. Well, it's only there once. So if you've taken it out and you don't put it back into the house, you've already pre-spent your money. So when you sell your house, you're not going to make any money. Yeah. And you're saying that was a contributing factor to the 2008, 2000. Yeah. It wasn't so much what caused the recession. It's just what made it so much worse. Because if there is a market correction and prices dip a little bit, if you've got equity, that equity can absorb that dip. But if you've taken the equity and spent it, there's nothing to absorb the dip. So now you're underwater. Yeah. So I just always caution people, if you do do any kind of cash out refinance, make sure the cash goes into your property to build its value up to make sense as to why you're doing it. So I'll put links in the show notes to the VA. They have a number of resources on Earl's and VA loans. I'll, I'll definitely add those in there. So you should read up and see what they're saying. But one thing I've noticed is I did do an Earl on my home. Mm-hmm. And, I did one on mine. And uh, yeah, it mm-hmm. makes sense. It reduced the yeah. interest rate. You do the math and you can see where your break even point is. But uh, one thing I noticed is that every day I go to the mailbox, I easily have two, three, sometimes yep. four, you know, direct mail solicitations for another Earl loan. And some of these look a little sketchy. I saw one the other day that was like, I don't remember what the rate was, but it was something phenomenal, like, you know, less than 2%, like 1.9. And I'm like, come on, that cannot be true. Right. Or do you have any advice for like how to sniff out which ones are sketchy and which sure. ones are legit? One of the things you need to do is you always need to flip it over on the back or wherever they put the kind of fine print table, because that's where they'll have to tell you by law, they have to tell you certain fees and different things. And the government came up with a thing called the APR or the annual percentage rate. And what APR is, is when you get a loan, any kind of loan, whether it's on a car, house, whatever, you get your interest rate, right? So let's just say it's 3% just for simple information. Mm -hmm. The APR is what that would be if all the fees associated with that loan were expressed as a percentage. So if I get a 3% loan, but the APR is 3.5%, that means if I take all the fees that that bank or that lender is charging me and I fill them over the course of the loan, even though I may have to pay those up front, it would actually be three and a half percent. So the APR is a way you can kind of compare apples to apples. So if you get a letter from two different lenders and one's APR is half a point higher, then you know, even though they may be giving you what's called a teaser rate, they're actually gonna have so many fees that you're not really ever gonna see that rate. The other thing is, you know, just like they taught us in the Navy, if it sounds too good to be true, it is. There's no probably there. So a lot of times, you know, when you check into these things, oh, you don't qualify after all. Your credit's not good enough, even though you may have an 800 credit score. You know, you have to have absolutely perfect credit or you have to have some other weird thing. The other thing a lot of uh, lending institutions like to do, and and this really irks me, is most people have 30-year loans, right? A lot of times those rates, when you look close, they'll be for a 10-year loan or a five-year loan. Well, that's just unrealistic. And then when you ask them, well, what's your 30-year rate? They come up with some, you know, a normal rate or even a higher rate. What I always tell everyone is, you should be able to get a decent idea of what your rate's going to be without anyone pulling your credit, without you know any kind of real extensive thing. You should be able to talk to a company and get an idea of what they're rated. Now, they're not going to be able to give you an actual rate until they pull your credit and do a full app, but you should be able to get an idea. And go to reputable companies. If you get a teaser thing in the mail and it sounds too good to be true, call your current bank and say, hey, if I did a, a VA IRL right now, what's your running rate? 
Again, they're not going to give you an exact. They might give you a range, but you can see, is it comparable? You know, call institutions that you've heard of forever that you already do business with. You know, call if you know a mortgage broker, if you know a realtor, call them up and say, hey, who's your mortgage broker you trust? Call them and get their rate. Don't just trust something because it's in your mailbox. Yeah. You know, unfortunately, VA loans, like all most things with houses are public record. So there's people that can go and they can see that you have a VA loan on this house that we're sitting in right now. And so then they can mail you stuff. And it's like all direct mail, you know, they, they're, what is it? 1% or 0.1%. Right. If they can get them to do it, then they make money. Yeah. Somebody's listening to this and wants to ask you a question. Is there a place online where they can find you and connect and LinkedIn or a, is there a business uh, website? Sure. I'm on LinkedIn, you know, just my name, Craig Hatcher. My firm's website is either georgiaresidentialrealty.com because that's our name of our firm. We also have a shortened because that's really long. It's grratl.com. Georgia Residential Realty Atlanta.com. And, you know, they're welcome to go there and check out our site. I'd love to talk to them if they're local. I can help people anywhere in Georgia. I have connections and things all around the country. One of the things I'm in, which I think is a really good program, is if you are somewhere else and you're looking for an agent, if they're a realtor, there's a, a realtor certification called Military Relocation Professional. And I'm a member of that. It's extra training you have to take, you have to get extra certifications. And it's a group of people that have agreed when you join this this group, this program, you've agreed to basically take care of veterans and active duty, like during um, change of order stations, station order changes, those kind of things. And so you're more familiar with what goes on in the military world. You're also normally more familiar with a VA loan. I have received referrals through that and given referrals to that to other agents around the country. I recently had a client here locally. They had some family members in Virginia that were looking for a better agent than what they could find. And I went through the MRP program, got an agent in Virginia, and she took great care of them. They just closed on their house. Yeah. So it's a to be a member of that, you have to basically say, hey, I'm willing to serve veterans and I'm willing to serve people in the armed services. So that's another resource if you are talking to agents, you can you know find out if they're a member of that. I'll get a link for me and put that in the show notes. So Craig, you know, thank you so much for your service. Thanks for coming on the show and sharing your experience. And also for uh, you know, for all you're doing to spread the word about the the VA benefits that many veterans have earned. Absolutely. And, and, you know, if you are a veteran and you haven't used your VA program, especially if you're renting or any kind of non-home ownership, I highly recommend you seek that out because the program is just phenomenal. I mean, you can't get zero down payment and no mortgage insurance from anybody else. It's literally the best way to buy a house. All right. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Thank you for listening to the Boots About Business podcast. Please know you can subscribe to this podcast wherever you catch your podcasts. And while you are there, won't you leave us a nice review? It'll help the show and in turn help other veterans. Finally, if you know someone that's a veteran in business or is an entrepreneur with a story to share, hit us up using the contact form on the show's website. That's bootsaboutbusiness.com. That's all one word, bootsaboutbusiness.com. Until next time, I am your host, Frank Strong, out here.